Thanks for stopping by. I'm Corey Edwards, writer, director, comedian. And for all our new listeners from Norway, epinephrine. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, we don't have any listeners in Norway. Wouldn't it be great if somebody in Norway was actually listening to this? I don't think we reach that far. And, uh, of course, epinephrine is uh, an over-the-counter <laughs> uh, medicine. It is not a greeting in Norwegian. I don't know any Norwegians. I don't know any Norwegian. And I don't know any Norwegians. Um, you know what? I bet I do. I bet somebody, somebody close to me has a little Norwegian blood in them. And if you do, hi, shout out. Oh boy, it's a morning of tangents. You know, I'm excited because somebody flipped the giant autumn switch somewhere and it got cold this week uh, where I live. And ooh, it's now fall. It was, there was a lot of heat still falling off the summer, but it is fall it is time. We've got jackets on. I pulled out some snuggly sweatpants and I'm excited. I love the fall. We're now, it, it just started happening. I had my first pumpkin spice thing. They're putting pumpkin spice in everything. They have to. It's the law. You can go get the uh, uh, pumpkin spice gordita at Taco Bell. Get the pumpkin spice Big Mac. Uh, Nissan just announced the new Nissan Pumpkin Spice just came out. Uh, it's a lovely um, uh, uh, beige bronze color. Um, I'll tell you what I did have, and I did not have this last year. Um, well, first of all, what I do love every year is pumpkin butter. Pumpkin butter. Oh, my gosh. I kind of have to stay away from it because I start putting it on everything. But um, I was given a little box of... Trader Joe's, JoJo's. You know JoJo's. They're like, they're like Oreos, but better. They got kind of a, a little icing coating on them. So these were pumpkin spice JoJo's. They are, oh, stop right now, whatever you're doing, and drive to your nearest Trader Joe's and get you some. Because I took one bite and I looked at my wife and said, I'm in trouble. And by that, I mean, I you got to get these out of the house. Um, I will just immediately eat all of whatever box is, is, is near me. My life is now divided into different categories. Um, figuring out how to get more pumpkin spice JoJo's, eating JoJo's, or um, just remembering the experience of pumpkin spice JoJo's that I ate and thinking about when I can eat them again. That's just pretty much the, the categories of my life right now. Because, um, wow. Anyway, I really wish uh, uh, Trader Joe's would sponsor this podcast so that they would just start sending me stuff because uh, I'm talking about him anyway. I love I love me the Trader Joe's. I don't know who Trader Joe is, but he did a good thing. We got a great guest this week. I know I say that every week, but this time it's true. This guy is an innovator. Have you heard of a little film called Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow? It, it had its day, and maybe some of you people are younger and you don't remember it. Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Um, no slouch of a film starred Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Angelina Jolie, Michael Gambone, and it was hearkening to the films of yesteryear of the 1930s cliffhangers, Buck Rogers, it had giant robots, it had uh, uh, flying saucers and fighter planes, it had ray guns, it had a holographic uh, Laurence Olivier, yes, a holographic Laurence Olivier. It, it was, uh, you know, it, it is a love letter to all those films, all those Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon uh, uh, cliffhangers. And it looked amazing. And it was, they were some, uh, uh, you know, Carrie and Kevin Conrad were two brothers who knew enough about effects to say, why can't we just uh, put the actors against blue, blue screens and green screens? And because we don't have any money and we'll just make all the sets virtual. No one had done that. Before there was Avatar, before there was Sin City, before there was uh, a lot of what George Lucas uh, is known for doing, which is a lot of virtual sets and everything virtual around the actors, these guys did like a whole movie like that and it took the world by storm. Uh, so much so that people like James Cameron 
and George Lucas were inviting them to parties saying, how'd you guys do that? What were the problems you encountered? So I'm going to be talking to Kevin Conran. Uh, His brother is credited as the director, but uh, Kevin would be credited as inventing the whole world you see in Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. So I just want to let you know who we've got as a guest. Um, and, And by inventing the world, I mean every costume you see, every robot you see, every vehicle you see, he designed it and had to figure out how to get it on screen with these actors. So he'll tell you some more stories about that and just his, his point of view on filmmaking, which is refreshing, um, which is not go to the most expensive tools first. Um, and speaking of expensive tools, uh, we've all been convinced to use emojis for the rest of our lives, I guess. We, I, I, you know, Remember a time when we didn't even know what emojis were and then they were introduced onto our phones and now that's a lot of us have to use them. I just learned this this week, a little bit of current events. I read this random article that apparently uh, there is a younger set of people that don't like the thumbs up emoji. Gen Z finds the thumbs up emoji, I don't know, what did they say? Passive aggressive? They almost feel attacked. They feel like it's a disingenuous, sarcastic emoji. And it also shows how old you are if you use it. So I got to tell you guys, I use the thumbs up emoji probably 10 times a day. And so I guess I'm old. But you know what? I am encouraging people every time when somebody says, hey, will you go pick up the kids? Hey, will you go do this for me? Hey, can we uh, get on the phone tomorrow? I go, you bet. Thumbs up emoji. I don't see how that's passive aggressive. I don't see how you feel attacked. You feel attacked? That was the line in the article, that they feel attacked when they see a thumbs up emoji. Man, what, what does a high five mean to you? Is that assault? Because I still do that. And yeah, I know that makes me old. I like a good high five. I like a good thumbs up. Man, I just, I don't understand. Is it going to swing back? Because I'm not giving up the thumbs up emoji. I'm like now leaning into it. I'm defiant now. So maybe, maybe my thumbs up emoji is a little passive aggressive. Maybe it's, you know, it's self-fulfilling prophecy because I'm so angry about it now. I'm using it again. But now my wife and I are sending the thumbs up emoji and uh, she'll send it to me and then I will text back, how dare you? So uh, it's a little joke now we have. Um, but I love, I love emojis. My, one of my favorite ones, I don't know what this says about me, is the uh, smiley face, but he's not smiling. His, his, his mouth is just a line, a straight flat line and it, both of his eyes are flat lines. Like he's just going, oh my gosh, can you believe this? Oh boy. It's like, it's like, it's a, it's a simmering deep sigh as an emoji. And I put it at the end of things when I say, I just saw this, or this person just told me this. And then I just use that emoji. Oh gosh. One other thing I like to do, mostly to my close friends or my wife, she'll say, you know, can you do that? Can you pick up this dry cleaning on the way home? And I'll say, sure thing. And she'll say, thanks. And do a heart emoji. And then I will pick just any random emoji. And I mean, the more random, the better. So she's like heart emoji or kiss face emoji. And then I say Ferris wheel or purple squid. Uh, I also like black Santa. I was, I, I like to give a good black Santa emoji just off season. Cause I find it refreshing. Um, so that's, uh, that's what's going on in the world. Things are pumpkin spicy and I am, uh, I'm using a thumbs up emoji. Hey guys, here's a little personal ad. I, I just thought I would mention this because we do have, uh, the holidays coming up. Um, there's a lot of corporate parties, a lot of Christmas parties, a lot of people gathering together and they need to hire entertainment. Um, a lot of you guys know that I do stand up comedy and uh, I do speaking engagements. Did you know that you can just get a hold of me and hire me to come out and speak or do stand up for your group? It's possible. Uh, all you got to do is contact me uh, through my website, uh, coreyedwards.com, C-O-R-Y-E-D-W-A-R-D-S.com, and that'll lead you to uh, some emails that you can contact me or the people that book me. Um, and I'll do stand-up comedy for uh, corporate parties, for Christmas parties. It's just a great time of year where I see that a lot of people need that, and I do it, I love it, and sometimes people just, it doesn't occur to them that they could actually just call me up or email me, and I will, I will fly out to your uh, event, I will walk out to your event, <laughs> if it's down the block, but I'll probably get in my car and or a plane, train, and automobile and come to your place and do comedy. So you can just go to coreyedwards.com um, or contact me through Twitter. 
um, or contact me through Instagram and I will probably uh, follow up and we'll do some comedy together. You know, we'd all like to say that we're creative and we'd all like to say that we can create worlds. But my guest today is somebody who's actually done it, created entire worlds for feature films and beyond. Uh, he's a production designer, but so much more. And a guy that probably loves rocket ships as much as I do. It's Mr. Kevin Conran. Kevin, welcome. Corey, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. Hey, it's always good to talk to you. I, I, I get inspired by uh, whatever you're working on or whatever... Uh, you just finished. Um, but I think most people will be able to see uh, a huge volume of your work in the film Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. Uh, really a great film. I, I know that it depends on, you know, when you were going to the movies and what age you were. Um, but I totally geeked out about this film before I met you uh, to the point that I don't think I've ever told you this. At one uh, grown up Halloween party, I went as Sky Captain in my costume. <laughs> Uh, you know, Corey, having had the pleasure of knowing you for many years now, that does not even surprise me. Uh, it's funny, <laughs> but it doesn't surprise me. And that was before we met, and I don't know why it's never come up. I, I was It was more like I, I, was, uh, I went as if Sky Captain gained 20 pounds. <laughs> hey, man, if it makes you feel any better, initially when we first started talking about casting that role, it wasn't, uh, hey, let's run out and get the most handsome guy in Hollywood. We were actually thinking about somebody who was, uh, who'll go unnamed, but was a little more uh, world weary and uh, had some miles on him, you know? Uh -huh. So, uh, yeah, who knows, man? Maybe we should have cast you. I don't know. Oh, man, you should have called me. <laughs> I'm sure I would have got the movie made. Um, well, I mean, for those who maybe are are thinking, I've heard that title. It's a great title. Uh, which one was that again? Because uh, I think uh, it, it, it could stand alongside uh, movies like The Rocketeer. It feels like a movie that was found... Uh, from the uh, from the 1930s serials, but it's done with uh, probably at the time some of the most advanced technology uh, that we had, and and it was this crazy leap. I remember reading about it in the trades that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you and your brother conceived of this movie. What if we mostly just photograph the actors, and everything else is something we could create uh, from nothing? And I don't know. I mean, Sin City had kind of done that, but it, it was a very graphic interpretation. And this was this was a very uh, tactile um, version of that. Is that is that accurate? What I'm saying? It's it's pretty accurate. But I gotta I gotta correct him one little thing. We predated all that stuff. We were the first uh, fully green screen shoot. We were before Sin City and uh, Avatar and all that other stuff that followed after us. Um, we we it, broke them. New that's amazing and yeah. like what what ended up as far as the roles you guys had your your brother is credited as uh the director but um when i it's not even i can say you were the production designer and we'll talk about what that role really means but it, it went beyond production design you kind of designed everything we see on screen like you designed the costumes the sets the the creatures the props everything right yeah that's correct um yeah, it's weird, Corey. You know, when when we first started to uh, work on this thing for real, I mean, we were finally funded and it wasn't just any longer two brothers with an antique Macintosh in a one-bedroom apartment, you know, put this thing <laughs> together. It was actually going to be a real movie. Um, that became a concern really early on. It was like, what to call me? Because there wasn't a direct analog to standard titles in Hollywood production designer was the closest thing. And it certainly encompassed all of that, but you're right. I did. I did more than that. Um, in the sense that, you know, you didn't, uh, we weren't shooting locations. We weren't even shooting elaborate sets on a stage. So, you know, you, a lot of the things that a cinematographer would typically do, I was doing because I was putting that world around the actors, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it, it encompassed a lot of things. And, you know, naive, I've always said, you know, anytime I've spoken about this film, that naivete got us a long way because I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do some of the things I was doing. And as it turns out, um, it's really what allowed us to make the movie. I think that we we share a lot of similar stories. Um, uh, Hoodwinked was not by any means uh, the, the, the budget that Sky Captain ended up being, but it was this kind of like 
again, you talk about like starting in an apartment with just a couple of guys and um, right. not knowing what you can't do. I very much relate to that, that thank goodness we didn't know what we were, quote unquote, supposed to do or what we weren't supposed to do. We just kind of everything funneled to us and everything funneled to you guys. You're like, well, I guess I'll I guess I'll design the sets, too. Or I guess I'll. and you end up like uh, uh, fitting Angelina Jolie for a costume uh, by the end of this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you know, it's, it, it is weird, Corey. And I think that we, you and I, you know, I've talked about it a lot over the years, but uh, we were certainly aware of you guys at a certain point, you know, and here's two other brothers doing something that really hadn't been done at that point when you guys were putting Hoodwink together. And um, so I, I felt like we had sort of a, a kinship. I think you and I have talked about it a lot over the years, even going beyond film, but uh you're right, man. I mean, like when you're when you're digging in and doing something and trying to make it happen, you're on the floor screwing IKEA desks together for artists to sit at and everything else. You know, anything that has to be done, you do. Um, <laughs> I think that that's actually also benefited my career post Sky Captain, um, in the sense that I function largely as a production designer, but I tend to think, and you can ask most of the producers I've worked with, most of them. Uh, I tend to think more like a producer because I'm fully aware of budgets and schedules and, and the real urgency of getting a film done as being the most important thing. You know, it'd be great to be an artist and just sit around and daydream all day and try new stuff. And certainly using these digital tools gives filmmakers an opportunity to try out new things in ways that they couldn't do two ago. It's just too expensive. So now you can try stuff. Hey, that didn't work. Let's try it again. But you can become a victim of those tools because you can't just play around forever. You have to make decisions. And that's, I think that's the key thing. When you set out to do a project, you better know what you want to do. Yeah. It's, it's really, I think some, some creatives get frozen by not really indecision, but like there's six ways we could do this. Uh, yeah. And I remember, yeah. and, and I'll tell our audience that, you know, you and I, uh, we almost worked together a couple of times. And then finally, on this uh, movie that I, I finished, uh, that was it's on Netflix now, it's called Fearless. Um, you came on as a production designer. And I remember the day that you had a team of artists working on it was I think it was a vehicle like a Jeep, an army Jeep. And you said, uh, look, I'm going to show you like two army Jeeps. Or he even showed me one. He said, here's the design we have for the Jeep. Now, I could show you 10 Jeeps or we could spend two weeks looking at Jeeps. But I'm telling you, this is probably the, the one that I think we should go with. And, and we've got bigger fish to fry. And I was like, got it. Let's use that Jeep. And I think that on bigger productions, um, producers and some directors get real kind of lofty. And like all the choices, especially in animation, all the choices that we could consider. And it's the decision-making quickly, especially on a budget that saves you, I think. Without question. And, and you're 100% right. I mean, that's, that's not something I could have done with just any other director. You know, I knew you. You knew me. We, I, I think you, you gave me a level of trust right from the beginning, you know, as to what I was responsible for that I appreciated, but it helped make my job easier. And the truth is, you know, if, if we were, had, you and I had been making a, $200 million feature for Pixar or something, we would have done a hundred different versions of that Jeep, you know, because right. you would have had the, had the bandwidth and, you know, we're working with smaller budgets, but not just smaller budgets, uh, smaller art departments, smaller modeling departments, all the way down the line. And if the production designer is not aware of those limitations, um, you're going to be in for a world of hurt real quick because I can tell you some funny stories. I, I try to think about how to, well, not name names, but um, I was working on a, a television series and, it, you know, and I was brought in to replace somebody and uh, because they kind of stuck in the mud. And when I got there, I realized that in the intervening couple of weeks where we had a gap before I got there, um, a producer had stepped in to sort of, make some decisions creatively design wise and uh, just keep the train on the tracks. And really what they succeeded in doing was putting the train on 800 different tracks. And, you know, I came in and we were, they'd show me some artwork that had gone through uh, design and then into modeling and they'd gone through, you know, 
I think it was eight or nine times at this point. And all they were messing with were the eyelashes on a secondary character. <laughs> I kid you not. And I, I just couldn't believe it. And I said, look, we're done with that kind of thing. We're not doing that anymore. That's not how you get these movies made, you know, and you just, you have to know, uh, you have to have enough experience to recognize what is really important and what is okay. And okay is okay. Okay. doesn't mean less than it means it meets the standards you need for the need. And I think that, um, you know, it's story. It's always story first. And again, you and I have talked about that a ton over the years. But you know, as a production designer, you also have to think as a storyteller. And if something's necessary to portray the moment or provide information, it has to be there and has to be good. It's not really necessary. It's background. Cool. That's good enough. Let's go on to the important things. Right. You have the ability to, to prioritize and help the director prioritize too. When you're working with, I, you know, I, I don't know how successfully you can get producers to prioritize. It depends on the, uh, the cut of their jib. I, I you know, I, I have been in a, a, a third meeting about what a pair of boots look like. And I'm yeah. like, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. And they're on boots of a, a, not even a secondary, a tertiary character. Um, I think that some people just enjoy making choices over and over again or something. But uh, I think when your eye is on the movie and what the, the priorities are in within the frame, um, you are constantly tracking that as like, what, what are the priorities here? But even I think uh, you have indie roots as far as like you're willing to do anything. I, I, that's how I approach a lot of uh, the things that I do is like if you have independent film roots, you're not just like I like in the days of when we were shooting live action, my brother and I, it, it's not just can we find a location? Can we find a location where we turn the camera two or three times and it'll look like two or three different locations? Like, oh, we Absolutely. could turn it this way and we could get the park and we turn this way and we get the post office. And I think you that bet. you still have to think that way in CGI. CGI is not limitless, which is what some people think. Completely. You're absolutely right. You basically end up doing the same thing. Um, you know, you you stretch these assets because each thing that gets on screen in a CGI film is designed, it's modeled, it's textured, it's in many cases rigged, it's lit. It's it, There's a billion steps beyond designing it and that all take time and cost money, more importantly. So you can't have everything. You've got to figure out ways to take what you've got and be creative with it. There were shots in Sky Captain where we fell back on one of the early problems we had in a short we realized we've got a scene in Times Square, you know, basically Broadway in New York City and giant robots are coming down the street. Well, we can't generate 500, 1,000 people in the middle of the street in New York, you know, and what are we going to do? And so we started to think about it and we that's when the influence of those old Fleischer Brothers Supermans really became important to us because those guys back then couldn't really sit there and pencil draw a thousand people either. So what did they do? And we sort of broke down some of the tricks that they utilized to sell a bigger thing. And, um, you know, many of which we ended up using on fearless because we are characters. We can have on screen, how many we can afford to build all of that kind of stuff. So you, you have to be, you have to go beyond just drawing pictures. You have to start thinking about what can we do with sound? What can we do with framing? Um, you know, what can we do with simple 2D shapes that are close to camera? Any any kind of thing that will help sell the idea and bring a richness to it and not cheapen it. That's what you look for. Right. And uh, and, and some of the tricks you're talking about is like the use of silhouettes or the use of shadows to depict right. a crowd. Um, and because you picked a film that would harken back to those styles, that was also very smart, too, I thought. Um, yeah, we were we were acutely aware of well first of all i mean honestly it, it, it i'd love to tell you what geniuses we were and how that was in the <laughs> dna of the thing from day one but the truth is you know carrie and i kind of grew up loving all that stuff we grew up uh in flint michigan at the time there was a independent tv st a uhf station which i don't think those things even exist anymore but uh channel 50 in detroit and they used to show all these old crazy things from everywhere but a lot of flash gordon serials and uh old Abbott movies and um 
those early Marvel animations that were basically uh, Jack Kirby drawings with sound over the top of them that didn't move. And <laughs> oh, yeah. we loved all of that stuff. So, you know, we, uh, we were very familiar with the look and feel of those old uh, serials and we just, we loved them. So it started with the love of the, uh, you know, the love of the genre. And then it became more a technical exercise in how did we pull it off? And you speak of this six-minute short film. Um, is that? Is, did you say, let's see if we can do this for six minutes, and then let's go show investors, let's go show other bigger people that we could that we did it this far. You know, I think um, well, there's a, there's a few things. It's not a short answer. I'm sorry. Um, That's all right. It's a podcast. You can we can okay. babble uh, down sidetracks if we want. Okay. Well, it, well, it, there is a short answer. Yes, we were going to make this short thing and then show it to people and hope to get somebody interested. <laughs> But that easy, you know, because we, we were literally making this thing on one antiquated Macintosh and putting shots together that had to then be rendered. You know, now everybody's at or near real time rendering, you know, and you're, you're making changes and you're seeing them almost immediately and and all that kind of stuff. But 20, nearly 20 years ago, um, that wasn't the case. So we would frequently create a shot. And it's and you got to imagine, you know, we're we're not modelers and we're not animators in the conventional sense. So we we couldn't we knew what our limits were. So we put a shot together. It's a car driving on the street. We've got a scrolling background. Well, that all has to be drawn and comped and put together, and and then you drop your actors in or whatever, whatever the shot is. But you you send it off to render. And back then, it would frequently take these shots 24, 36 hours to render. For one single shot and you're movie that's going to be 2000 shots right yeah and uh anyway your 24 hours would pass we'd be like the little kids at christmas we'd open it up and look at the shot and it would be absolute garbage and you're like man start again man i got garbage for christmas he said yeah yeah oh all the time man we were opened up stuff that was like just so close to what we wanted but not quite there and like we couldn't live with it we just had to tear it apart and start again and um so consequently that six minute short took about seven years to make and it's you know that's a little misleading in the sense that it wasn't like we were 40 50 hours a week every single week we were pretty close i mean we worked on it all the time every spare moment was with it but you know um kids were born back surgeries were had i mean there were <laughs> there were breaks in between here and there where life intervened you know but um yeah it, it was just it was a ton of work and when we finished it we finally finally finished it and thought hey we've got something to show somebody we didn't really know what to do with it um we'd gone to these really elaborate lengths and made these metal boxes that were uh cobbled together and then stuffed with uh, a VHS tape in this foam padding and a comic book we'd made. They were a logo was airbrushed on the top. There were uh, military straps were added to the boxes. We had made twenty five of them. I don't know what they cost us to do. It was expensive, and uh, we only ever took out one because the first guy we took the thing to, uh, <laughs> that was it. So I still got like twenty some boxes laying around here. That's amazing. That's yeah. that's cool. I, I think I've I've seen some of those kinds of things that just to get someone's attention. It's more than a script. It's more than a short film. It's yeah. kind of this care package full of the tone of the film. That's cool. Very much, you know, every every little detail mattered kind of guy. Well, I think we still are sort of that way. And yeah. um, and it, it must have worked because uh, that's all it took was the first one. John Avnet, um, who uh, was a pretty big producer. I mean, was this like suddenly did things ramp, ramp up? Well, you know, nothing's quick in Hollywood, as you know, as well as anybody. Um, but surprisingly quickly, um, we, we didn't have a connection to John, but my a friend of my wife's uh, worked for him. And um, Marsha Oglesby and, you know, I talked to my wife. She said, well, let's call Marsha. And invite her to dinner and we'll show her what you guys did and just see what she thinks. And, you know, we, we didn't know what to expect. She could have very easily said, uh, what, what, what have you guys done for the last seven years, but waste a lot of time. And she didn't, she was immediately taken by it. And she said, let me talk to John. And then the very next morning, real early, like, you know, 
I don't know, quarter to eight in the morning or something. I get a call from Marsha, which I never had, you know, and she says, Hey, can you, uh, can you be here in 30 minutes? And here was, here was Culver city and we were in Encino. So I'm like, yeah, no, I live in, there's no way I can get down there in 30 minutes. And she says, well, get here as fast as you can. So I called Carrie and, uh, we got on the 405 and proceeded to sit there for about an hour and 20 minutes, like you do. And we got there as fast as we could. And we went in and they had the film queued up, uh, and John, I don't think John had seen it before we walked in. He'd just been told about it. So Marsha brings us in and then hits play and, and he must've watched it through three or four times in a row without ever turning around to us or saying a word. He just kept rewinding it and playing it again. Then the last time he finally spins around his chair and he says to us, what do you want? And, uh, (laughs) you know, we said (laughs) very (laughs) probably, you know, hindsight, I don't, I don't think we even knew what we were doing. You know, we, we had an idea we wanted to make this movie. That's about all we knew, but we did have a number in mind, um, what it was going to cost to make. So we told him we want $3 million and, you know, certainly $3 million, not to sneeze at today, but asking somebody for 3 million bucks, just, it, we might as well ask him for 3 billion. It seemed preposterous to us. You know? Um, but that was a number we came up with based on the amount of time we'd put into it as just two guys one machine and doing the math, we kind of extrapolated out what we thought it would cost, but we could have done it for 3 million bucks. We kept it black and white. We didn't have big name stars. We, a bunch of stuff, you know, and John said, yeah, I think we can do a little better than that. And then, um, we went away and he had a lot of subsequent talks with Carrie that I wasn't fully privy to at the time because I was working full-time job and dealing with three little kids. And, you know, so I, I get my updates on where progress was. And I don't know how many months this took before we were actually kind of legitimately in production, but it took a while and it took a while. Cause John was actually out finding about $17 million, somewhere between 17 and 19. And, um, that's what the movie really cost. And, you know, that is still, that's still incredible though, for a movie that opened wide theatrically with Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow in it. It well, okay, let me, let me, let me, that's production cost. You know I mean? see. That's, that's not Gwyneth's fee. Uh, <laughs> Jude got a producer credit, so he took some money that way. Angelina was paid uh, from a different fund entirely because she was brought in sort of after the fact um, by the financier. So that didn't come out of the film's budget. But the the actual making of the movie, hiring all those effects artists, renting a place in Van Nuys, buying all the machines, you know, putting server rooms together, anything and everything, you know, costumes, you name it. Um, yeah, 17, 19. And that was, but that was our whole thing. Like we went in there expecting this big shot Hollywood producer who, you know, John made movies like Risky Business and Fried Green Tomatoes. I and mean, he's a big guy and um, expecting him to be impressed by these two nerds that said, hey, we can cut the costs on this thing exponentially, and we can do this for next to nothing, relatively speaking. And he didn't care. Nobody really cared. And the funny thing is, you know, these techniques and the approach and the new workflow that we cultivated, all of that kind of stuff became commonplace very quickly. And, and, you know, this isn't me talking. This is uh, George Lucas and James Cameron and guys I've met through the course of all this stuff, uh, talking to us about what we did. And, you know, these things have become commonplace now. But the funny thing is, all those techniques and approaches that we felt, hey, we can do this for three million bucks, they've only been implemented on big, giant movies that still cost $150 million to make. So we fully expected an army of aspiring filmmakers to come right behind us in very much the same way, making their big dream movie for five million bucks, you know, and it's never really happened. And to my knowledge, I don't think anything has, uh, you know, certainly anything that got to the level where it was released worldwide by a big studio with major stars and stuff. Um, and yeah, it's, that's what we were thinking. It's what we were hoping. I think it, you know, it was a little disappointing that that didn't happen. And uh, what do you think the barrier is for many more filmmakers to follow? Was it that, I know that it didn't do like crazy numbers, but it's it's still something, it's still a movie people talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think, you know, if you, if you 
I, and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I think worldwide it made just under a hundred or something. And now, if you go out, if you if you go out and your story is, hey, this movie cost ninety million dollars to make and it only made a hundred, that's a bomb. But if the narrative were been more correctly told, and hey, this movie cost seventeen million bucks, it's a different story, and that's a pretty good return on your money. Right. Uh, right. Right. Uh, you know, without getting myself into trouble and naming names and telling too many stories that you know I can't afford to tell. Um, there were a handful of people who made a lot of money on that film and did very, very well. Um, you know, and, see, this and, is where uh, your story and my story is similar once again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And look, we, you know, I, I, it's a certain I'll even eat a certain amount of it because you guys and us, you know, this is our first foray into really making a big movie for a studio that's going to get all the power so you can put behind something to promote it and all of that. So we're noobs, you know, and you don't, you don't usually walk out the door with the yacht and the private Island on your first movie, you know, and, and that was okay. I don't think Carrie and I ever expected that or we're even looking for that. We wanted to make movies and uh, we largely got to make the one we wanted to make for the most part. Um, but yeah, we should have, but no, we, we, how do, Corey, how do I say like we got screwed over without saying, hey, we got screwed over and making it sound awful? How do you say that? Uh, you say I... you might say um, we got hoodwinked. Yes. Hey, now there's a clever guy. Yeah. Like I, I tell okay. people I tell people our movie couldn't be more aptly named. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, you know, there is a certain balance of, yes, this is, a, you know, you, you got to make a movie. And that's what we right. told ourselves. And it's right. it's vaulted you to a certain status of well, let's look at the, the glass half full that you just mentioned that you became part of a conversation that was just starting and you got invited to, I think to Skywalker ranch to hang out yeah. with like yeah. Yeah. the top people in cinema, James Cameron and, and, and Lucas. And I think Rodriguez was there. Uh, people who were taking these Zemeckis, chances. bird, all kinds of guys. Yeah. Zemeckis. See, that's, yeah. that's another one of my guys. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think, you know, uh, we should, we should have been treated. A little better than we were there's no two ways about it but you know we were we were not hollywood guys we when we met avnet we didn't neither us had representation or a lawyer or anything we we're just two goofballs that walked into this guy's office one day and uh and i'm not you know again i'm not pointing fingers at anybody i'm not accusing anybody of anything i'm just simply saying that like um the story that was Put out in the press about what this film cost and what it did it's not true it's yeah. not true at all and i'll absolutely stand behind that and yeah. uh you know I, had it been characterized a different way i think i think the, i think the whole perception of gary and kevin conrad might be a little bit different if people really understood that what ground we broke and the revolutionary way that it you know charted a path for people moving forward even up to today and um yeah we did it we we did it at a fraction of the cost but that didn't there were reasons people had to put the story out that they put out and it, it all had everything to do with you know covering people's butts and and uh yeah stuff. what's it like i mean i i experienced that too what what was it like i'm sure you've read lots of stuff on the internet with the chowderheads who like to talk about well it, it made this much but it should have made this much or i would have done it this way or right or uh, you know, I, the budget of Hoodwinked is quoted to me so often as probably double what it was. And I'm like, I don't even know where you got that. But I think that at the time, there's a lot of like the uh, the marketing people convinced us that like, look, we're, you you don't want to sell a 50 cent hamburger. Nobody's going to want to eat a 50 cent hamburger. You're, you you got to say it costs five, six dollars and it's the best hamburger you ever had. Uh, so it's that kind of a thinking. But I'm like, but isn't isn't the better story? The bootstraps of these young guys, that you know, like so. So it's, it's, it's all in the story that's told, the narrative that you're given. Uh, that's right. You would absolutely think so, Corey. I had the exact same experience many years after Sky Captain. Um, I'd written a screenplay for an animated feature um, that's been, man, it's been almost made three or four different times now. Uh, once we even had five million dollars in the bank ready to make it, you know, and the matching funds 
Uh, I was aligned with a guy who called himself a producer, said he had the money. He was just a charlatan and he didn't have any money. And so the thing fell apart because the other party couldn't afford to leave $5 million laying in a bank, you know, uh, right. take it back out and put it some other use. So it fell apart there. But one of the steps along the way was a different studio. And it was the same conversation. I went in there and I said, hey, I'm going to make this uh, animated film that's going to look as good as anything else out there right now. And I'm going to do it for 20 million bucks. Now, at, now, you and I have made those movies since then. You know, um, that's yeah. very common in animated films today. But back then when I was pitching it, um, you know, a few years post Sky Captain, that was huge. The only animated CG films being made were Disney Pixar $200 million movies, you know. And, hey, I'm going to do this for a tenth of that. And, well, you can't do that. And I said, well, sure I can. I got this whole movie behind me showing you that I can and here's how we're going to do this one. And we had footage and we had all kinds of stuff. And one of the guys said to me exactly what you just said. He said, well, he says, okay, I believe you. He said, I believe you. He said, I, and I know what you guys did previously. He said, so, uh, but here's the problem. And he went into the whole 50 cent hamburger was versus $5 hamburger thing. And I'm like, that's crazy. And he said, look, we'll, we'll make the film. He said, but it's, it's going to, we're going to say it's a $60 million movie. And he said, well, We'll get $60 million. I said, I don't need 60. I don't want to be responsible for $60 million. I don't need it. And <laughs> uh, so it fell apart. I, I kind of walked away from that one because I wasn't willing to do that and, uh, you know, fabricate a backstory to this thing that just wasn't true. So, uh, yeah. but that you're 100% right. That was, he said, nobody's going to want to buy it because they're going to think it's cheap. I'm like, they're not going to think it's cheap once they see it. Yeah. It's all it's all a dance and what you're what you're selling. Uh, you, you know, it's, filmmaking since its beginnings has been smoke and mirrors and magic tricks. And and there are still things today that uh, the simple use of foreground miniatures, you know, uh, yeah. uh, kids listening, uh, just take your plastic spaceship and put it very close to the camera <laughs> on a wide, wide lens and then have your friend run out in the middle of the field. And uh, presto, you've got a giant spaceship shot. Um, and we were doing that with Super 8 film. And um, yeah. there are things yeah. like that that I, I love hearing that, you know, J.J. Abrams tried that on a Star Trek movie. They, they had a, a model of a I think it was a distant factory or something. And it was literally a four foot model set in the field uh, about, you know, five feet from the actor. And it looked like he's looking at this giant, you know, in, in this thing, you know, this giant set that um, everybody now seems to just skip right to. Well, that's CGI. Well, that's. Yeah. A bit, yeah. all, all effects are the same now. They they just uh, do it on the computer, and I think that there's still a variety of techniques being used um, by the smarter, more savvier people. Because we've seen CGI effects that look terrible. That that um, Jurassic Park still holds up better than some things that were made two years ago, because it's that? all in the hands of the the person using it. What was that little movie you're so fond of that came out in 1977 with? Miniature? <laughs> well, you know what I was going to say. I was going to say your story. It's so similar to, I don't know if you've seen the uh, Industrial Light and Magic uh, documentary series that my kids and I are watching on Disney+. Plus. But yes, it feels like the, when you see these guys, these old guys talking about the beginnings of Industrial Light and Magic and the first days of Star Wars and how they not only didn't know what they were doing, they didn't even know if they could build the cameras from scratch that, that were going to do what they wanted to do. Like, like right. It was like nobody right. knew anything. Right. And that yeah. is so refreshing to see. And it's refreshing to hear you talk about it, too. Like you're, you guys were starting kind of the next wave of that thinking that started ILM. Well, that's why Mr. Lucas was so kind to invite us up there to talk shop with him and all those other guys for a weekend. Because it was and it was just us. It was just eight or ten guys, you know, of that stature. And then carrying myself, we felt like idiots being there. But uh, <laughs> they were all very curious about what we were doing. And and George drew those parallels himself you know, about where they were then and where we were at that time. And uh, we were acutely aware of all that. I mean, our, in fact, our little studio in Van Nuys by the airport uh, wasn't all that far from where those guys were working on Star Wars. Incredible. Yeah. Let me, let me uh, talk a little shop here with you on the making of Sky Captain. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the book uh, available now that you were putting together last time I talked to you? Yeah, yeah, it's it's out. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Um, it, it came out earlier this year, and uh, I'm pretty pleased with it. You know, I think uh, like anything else, you wish you could have done this and that, and included 
more and 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 gone deeper on some things but you know turns out publishing a book isn't a whole lot different than making a film you've got page counts and limitations and budgets and hey deadlines and of course covid conspired to screw all that up anyway and we oh, uh man weren't well, able to do a few things we wanted to do but yeah i, I wonder if you can share share a little bit of like um i know you had some some pretty significant stars on this film and that had to be a little nerve-wracking you guys kind of knew we've tested this technique but a lot of actors don't like to act with nothing a lot of actors you know i know you had props you had certain places they could sit and stand but did you were how, how did how did these big actors take to this uh it's almost like an acting class experiment um to act with nothing were, were, were some of them better than others at it um uh, probably but i would leave that to others to interpret and make their own decisions i wouldn't suggest that from my point of view you know i think uh jude was immediately comfortable with it like he understood he he walked right out there so oh, it's just like it's like a play in the round he said you know it's like stage and uh got it and he and he was excited he dove right in he was he was very curious the whole way through about all of it and uh That's you know great. yeah it was really great he was a very cool guy to work with i i mean i gotta say right up front you know i know that uh people have their opinions of movie stars and you know this and that and the world they live in and certainly our two leading ladies you know have taken hits in the press and this and that over the years i have to say we could not have been more fortunate to have worked with the three people we worked with really more than that. I mean, far more than that. We worked with all kinds of good. Michael Gambon was in that film. Um, Giovanni Ribisi is an awesome dude. I mean, Oh yeah. I remember it, he's in that. Yeah, man. Yeah. They were all great. I mean, they were all really great and they were very supportive of this new, at that time, what's really still an experimental movie, you know? And um, yeah, they couldn't have, they couldn't have been better. I actually got along fantastically well with Gwyneth and we hung out a lot and she was super cool. And, uh, and Angelina came in after the other two, um, and she was amazing. She, she had done all this research on her own where she went out around England, world war II pilots, you know, wow. and writing down getting, just getting little bits of, uh, you know, the lingo that those guys used to speak back in the day and much of which is in the film. And that came directly from her efforts and, uh, and, you know, just watching her work, you could see that, you know, it wasn't a surprise she wanted to direct movies because she was super into all that stuff. They were all really, really great. And uh, they didn't have to, to be. Yeah, they didn't have to be. We were absolute nobodies doing an experiment and they bought in and were super cool. I think that the people that stick around in this business still truly love doing it. Um, I, I often refer to a picture of Steven Spielberg on his uh, on his belly, I think when he was like, you know, 31 years old making Raiders of the Lost Ark. But also there's a photo of him like last year making West Side Story. And this is a 72 year old man. He's on his hands and knees. He's laying on the ground with a yeah. lens because yeah. he still loves doing it. He's still a kid with a camera. And so I think that even some of these actors, you know, sometimes we get caught up in the business of it. And sometimes you just have to go, why did we get into this in the first place? And you know, I, I, I have to believe that when Jude Law puts on, um, you know, the leather uh, Snoopy pilot hat and the goggles, yeah. gets in the cockpit, he's a kid again. And that's the part of the actor you want to wake up. I, I, and I'll have to tell you this story. I went to Comic-Con and I went to the, I think it was in Hall H, it was the Sky Captain panel. And Jude Law was sitting there at the, at the, uh, on the panel. And I think at the time there was this question of who's going to be the next Superman. There was, there was some project, one of the versions yeah. of the Superman films. And yeah. somebody said, what, what do you think uh, after this film? Uh, what do you think about some people saying you should play Superman? And he just leans into the mic and goes, I am not Superman. I am sky captain. <laughs> and it was so cool because I, I, what makes me feel a little sad is that I think he would have made five of these movies. Um, oh, you know. I, I think Jude would have been all in on this thing as long as we could have taken it because he uh, he was a true partner in it. You know, he was he really was invested in it and cared about it. And that uh, was evident in every interaction we ever had with him. What was the favorite thing? I know you you designed um, all the machines and all the sets. What, what was the favorite thing for you that you 
maybe didn't have to do 10 passes on, but it was like your, your little baby that you're like, you know what? I love tinkering with this prop or this creature. And it's your favorite in the movie. Do you have one of those? Um, I'm not sure that I do really. I, I like a lot of the robots for different reasons at different times. I, I liked, uh, I liked the set that we didn't actually end up utilizing. Uh, oh man. Cut for speed, but it was, uh, was when they got into the Himalayas and they found Totenkopf's uh, lair, you know, the mine and everything. So I was, it was a chance as a designer to cobble together like this holy place, this temple with this mad scientist laboratory. And what are you going to get out of that, Kev? You know? And so <laughs> I put all this stuff together and we built this, the guys did an amazing job modeling it. We put this cool set together and yeah, it was cut. And it was sort of heartbreaking because it was really cool. And uh, maybe I just remember it that way and more fondly because we didn't get to use it. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I liked the uh, I liked the initial big robot for what it represented and the tone it set, you know, starting starting the movie, because I did sort of use it as a guidepost for all the designs that came after. By the end of the film, you know, Totenkopf's technology had progressed. So I didn't want the robots at the end to look like that big clunky guy at the beginning. And I want to suggest there was a there was time in there was his... an, ev an evolution. Yeah. And um, so as you talk about Spielberg crawling on the floor, I, I literally would go back to the animators and walk these things for these guys and show them how that the... I like this squiggly arm robot. Maybe he's my favorite one. The one that breaks <laughs> in and uh, gets decks. Yeah. And guy captain shoots with the ray gun um, because they're very different than those big monoliths walking down the street in the opening of the film they're almost delicate and surgical and they got these weird reverse need legs and spindly arms and and they're creepy you know and yeah uh, yeah and so they they function completely differently and i was very happy with that yeah well i always love a a, a giant robot uh, so i i always remember those from the film but that's that's cool yeah this the, the ones with the the weird snaky arms they're they're kind of nightmarish the way they move yeah yeah, that was that was the whole that was the whole plan. What's fascinating to me is th this is obviously a long time ago, and you've worked on a lot of other things. You worked for pretty much all the all the major studios, and um, or many many of them, and but you haven't lost your sense of what's the simplest, cleanest way to get this done. And you're never like you've used a lot of the most advanced pieces of tech or tricks that are out there, but that's not always what it's about. It's like you know what maybe maybe this is the simplest line to get this done. Um, like on Fearless, you were telling me, look, we'll design a CGI rock that has like, you know, so many facets to it that you just keep flipping and spinning it and copying, pasting it. And suddenly you yeah. have a hundred rocks sticking out right. of the landscape. And right. it's not about it's not about making these beautiful hand painted rocks that maybe Pixar would do. It's about making two or three that you can spin and insert into the into the landscape plane or how you described it. Yeah. It, you know, there. so you have to be adaptable to the production. And I've worked on a couple of uh, DreamWorks features. I've worked on, I, I headed up the DreamWorks first uh, foray into Dragons Riders of Burke and did the first two seasons of that with them. And I was when primarily brought in, or in part anyway, I was brought in on that because they were having budget issues. It was gonna be far too expensive to produce for TV and knew that so they knew my history with Skycap and they were like, hey, we got to we got to do something to get costs down. And so it, a lot of thinking like that wasn't being done at the time, you know. And so I kind of went in and did a lot of that stuff. I helped them uh, reorganize their their workflow and, you know, which isn't always a pleasant thing to do because it means some people aren't going to have jobs now, you know, because their their position isn't really relevant in the way it was 20 years prior. You know, but hey, we need two guys over here, but we can lose 18 over there. And yeah, so, you, you know, you got to make those hard calls. But we 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 got the cost down. We got it to, to where they wanted it. And they still use that pipeline today. Well, and I think it's it's you pointed out to me. Most people would assume, OK, I've seen the How to Train Your Dragon films. Oh, well, the TV show, they're using the same assets. They're using the same right. uh, builds in the computer. No, you had to recreate everything from scratch, which I find amazing. I, hey, listen, I was as, st as stunned as you were because when I got hired, I thought, uh, well, this is, a, this is a piece of cake. We're going to get all that wonderful uh, feature film stuff and we'll just 
fiddle around, do redo new layouts, and you know, Bob's your uncle, right? But I get there only to find out that the only thing we got from the features were about five or six matte paintings of skies. That's all we had. We, and was that because you're just operating in a different facility, or you're you're operating on a different uh, resolution for television, or what? Well, what it what it really came down to, and this gets a little technical, but um, all of that DreamWorks stuff for the features was proprietary. You know, they're 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 writing their own code, they're developing software, they're it's very siloed. It's not intended to go out and mingle with other studios around the world or anything. Suddenly in TV, you're farming out a lot of this work to small studios in India and Taiwan and Japan and all over the place. So it has to be a tool that everybody can work with. And that, in this case, it was Maya, which was, you know, industry standard stuff, but uh, it didn't play well with all that um, dream stuff. We couldn't literally, you couldn't open up a model. It couldn't read the textures. You know, it was just, you were back at ground zero. Right. Do you think now, do you think now when DreamWorks makes a movie that they think, I know DreamWorks more than any other studio thinks, then we're going to do the TV show and then we're going to do the spinoff of that TV show. Like they, they seem to think that way now. Do you think they're oh, building sure. their features differently so that they can travel? I, I think, I think everything's different at this point. Yeah. And, um, and they, they do put more of a mind to that kind of thing now than they did. But you know, back then nobody, was doing it. It was all new. So it required people with new way of thinking to come in. And, you know, Carrie and I had walked in with that frame of mind from day one um, because we was and we knew the tools we were using were really off the shelf things. We weren't using, I don't even know these compositing programs existed back then, but we were using After Effects, you know, which anybody could use. And, yeah. uh, and also, that, like you, you, you were working on Sky Captain, knowing it was going to exist as a a two D projected thing, right? There was no talk of three D at that time. Well, they they did they did briefly bring it up, and uh, you know, but there's it, a lot it, of tricks, isn't there? A lot of tricks you can pull, knowing that you don't have to extrapolate that to three D. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, it it would have required a whole different kind of approach for much of the film if if we'd really done that. Fortunately, you know, that whole 3D craze, in my mind, was never really a huge fan of it anyway. Um, truthfully, you know, if you're a, if you're an artist of any, you know, a visual artist of any sort, like you draw or paint or make films, you're, it's all 2D anyway, whether the elements are moving or not, it's a flat surface, you're, it's, it's on you to, you know, sell the illusion that there's depth to this or, you know, that all of that stuff that the 3d thing is sort of a, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it never clicked with me in the way that, well, uh, and, and also you, you guys are that movie sky captain is a genre that that would be bizarre. It's like, I, I don't think I want to see like yeah. Raiders of the lost Ark in 3d because I want to no. feel like if it's not a film from the thirties, it's almost a film from the early seventies or something like it, it needs to have a vintage flat 2d feel to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. But for yours, yeah, definitely the, the vintage. Well, I was going to ask you, we're, we're getting to the end of our hour, but I want to know, you you may have many dream projects, but do you have a, like a one dream project? You're like, uh, still still got that one that's floating out in front of me that I, I got to get to. Can I have three? <laughs> you can have as many <laughs> as you want. I think I probably have three or four. Yeah, I've got several. I've got, like I said, I've got the, uh, the project, the animated feature that, uh, you know, at one time Amazon bought it, uh, one studio put five million bucks in the bank i mean i that one's been so close so many times and it and it it's been well received wherever i've taken it so i i do believe i've got something here um it's it's been things beyond my control people getting fired that green lit it person comes in and wipes the slate clean those are things that happen in hollywood that no control over and they don't really they're no reflection on your project it's just the way it works um john carter was the same thing for us we would have made john carter of mars at paramount but uh Sherry Lansing left the studio and that was that new guy came in and wiped the slate clean. Um, right, so I've got my animated feature. I've got a, I've got a pilot script for a project that um, I actually was very excited to be in business with uh, Ridley Scott on. I, they called me up one day and said they liked how my mind worked. Did I have anything I wanted to pitch? Fortunately I did. And uh, they loved it and took it and we went to CBS with it. And, uh, that was on a track to, and it fell apart. Um, 
a couple of different times. The first time um, w was studio politics again, people leaving jobs. And then it was resurrected and a studio in Canada was going to do it. But I'd been through enough at that point to recognize that I was just about ready to be taken advantage of again. You know, they were going to effectively take the project from me and then take me out of it. And uh, so I didn't sign the contract for that one. And it's, it's still a really good idea. I'd still love to do it. And then the uh, third one is something I'm currently working on. Now I got four. Okay, I got four. <laughs> I, got, I got another uh, live action thing that's a genre piece that I would very much love to do, sort of the Sky Captain uh, technique. If not, not necessarily the look, but the behind the scenes approach to putting it together. Uh, wouldn't be a big budget film. And then uh, the other thing I'm working on right now is... Uh, you know, uh, a genre thing, a uh, period thing that uh, mixes several genres, actually. And I'm, I'm right now I'm just sort of approaching it as a uh, graphic novel. You know, I'm, I'm just doing stuff. The intention is to ultimately make it a film, but I, I'm going to put it together and try to make a book out of it and wow. then take the book and go get it made. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, those four things. That's about it. Well, you know, and it's, it's for any creatives out there listening. Um, you know, you, you've just always got to be working on a number of things because you never know what the appetite, the appetites can shift out there. And you might meet a certain person who says, well, what have you got in the uh, in the thriller space? What have you got in the dream world space or whatever they come up with? Or we're looking for a romance. And so you kind of have to percolate a lot of little things. And it's sad. You start to like you, you said, I, I don't have one labor of love. I have like four minimum. Um so, yeah, you, you just and, and, and it's part of this business. Like how I, I guess that's one of my final questions is how do you what what is something you have learned in all your years of working in this creative business, which is a very unusual and different kind of business than other businesses that you have to get emotionally attached to things? You have to put your passion into it and then you have to, like, kind of shut that off and move on sometimes. What is there anything that you've taken that you've learned about, like living a creative life professionally? Uh, it's not for everybody. It's hard. <laughs> and it's, uh, I, you know, I have a few thoughts on this. I'll try to make them, keep them brief, but, uh, the, the, everybody's got the desire, you know, the old, the old, I, what I really want to do is direct thing. Right. And, uh, everybody wants to make stuff. Everybody wants to be in a film. Everybody wants to write a screenplay. Well, do it, do the work because the work's the hardest part and it's easy to give up. It's easy to put it aside. Um, it's very hard to stick with something. And, and the people that I've been involved with over the years that want all these things, but aren't willing to put the work in, I don't have a lot of patience for because I know what it takes and uh, anything short of that isn't going to get you there. It, it's, you know, save for certain people that are very fortunate and connected and those things work out. But generally speaking, you know, as for the making things, I've had periods where I've, I've been, you know, felt a little broken and just didn't want to be creative. And uh, I had, Carrie and I got in a big fight on Sky Captain one time, as brothers do. And uh, I went up to my little tiny cruddy office in the back of the building. And one of my best friends on the show, Michael Sean Fold, was our CG lighting supervisor, came up basically to see I was okay because he knew something was up. And he walked in right when I smashed my lamp above my drawing table. I just broke it to a million pieces, hitting it. And and then I just proceeded to rant, tell him what I was so mad about. And he said, okay, good. You got that out of your system? And I'm like, yeah, I think I do. He said, because uh, I, I think I said something, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to, I'm not going to extend myself for people. I'm just going to give, I'm going to do the job and go home. And that's it. You know? And he said, yeah, you're not going to do that. He said, because you're an artist. You can't do that. It's not how you're wired. Chrissy Hind is one of my all time favorite rock and roll stars, right? Yeah, and she, she's an accomplished artist, a painter, and she's got a quote that I always loved. And it was uh, I'll paraphrase, but it's uh, if you're an artist, you need to work. She said, you know, and her whole thing was like, it doesn't matter how old you are, or who you are. It doesn't matter if you're 12. If you draw, you draw. If you're 85 and you paint, you paint. And I think that's at the end of the day, I think that's kind of it. You make stuff. Yeah, I'm with you, man. And I can't uh, I can't wait to see what you make next. And I can't wait for us to work together again on something. Uh, we keep trying. We, 
I got I got one of those projects, and you you know which one it is. Where we got we got so close. We had a big actor attached. We had some money in the bank, and uh, you yeah. just gotta. You would think that that would make me stop trying, but um, every new time I sit down in a dark theater, I get rekindled and rebooted, or I'll open up an old script, and I just uh, I love it too much. And it's kind of like as an artist, you have to do it. You well, have Corey, to keep going. as far as that project goes, you if you get it going and i think that uh i think back to what an old time producer told me once he, i think he's long since left this life but he uh he told me at one point he said hey man you've got the thing you know he said you've got the project he said this town turns over quick people leave jobs they get fired they die they go away you can turn around and pitch the same thing back to the same studio five years later and it'll be completely different people hearing it for the first time the most important thing is to have the thing, to do the work. And uh, so, yeah, hopefully that project still comes to life. That's great, man. That's a great way to end it. And I hope that anybody listening who needs to hear that, hear it, man. Hear it. Hear it from Mr. Sky Captain himself. <laughs> All uh, right, buddy. All right, man. This has been a blast. Thanks. Thanks, Corey. Talk to you soon. Well, that's it. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my guest, Kevin Conran, for talking to us and inspiring us. And you can get his book, Sky Captain and the Art of Tomorrow, a big, beautiful coffee table book and a peek inside how they actually made the movie. And I will leave the link in the show notes. Click it and check that out. And you know what? Also check out the movie, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, if you haven't seen it or seen it lately. Uh, just to remind yourself of what an amazing thing they did. I'd also like to remind you I have a stand-up comedy special that you can get on drybarcomedy.com or the Drybar Comedy app. It's a half-hour special. Uh, it doesn't cost much to rent or buy at all, or you can also get a free month of their monthly sur subscription service if you use my promo code, Corey Comedy. That's C-O-R-Y-C-O-M-E-D-Y. No spaces. Gets you a free month. Okay? And you can also see a bunch of other uh, clean comedy on there for you and the family. Well, I hope that you were inspired. If you are a creative person, heed Kevin's words. First of all, do the work. Don't be afraid of the work. Do the work. If you really love this creative life, get out there and all do the work that it takes. And then just know you've got the thing. Guys, if somebody is looking for what you have or they've told you no, uh, just know that you have the thing. You are the creator. And sooner or later, someone's going to look around and need what you are creating. So just keep at it. And until next week, I'm Corey Edwards. Thanks for stopping by.